Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Some news in the NBA. Kyrie Irving is exercising his player option for next season. Adrian Wojnarowski pointing out, without the ability to find a sign-and-trade deal, Kyrie Irving will exercise his $36 million player option for next season. That'll put him back in Brooklyn. Woj having that. Thanks, Kyrie, for nothing. Thank you. That means, I guess, ultimately, you have Kevin Durant staying in Brooklyn. What a tease. All right, J.J. Burden. Do we have J.J. Burden? Do we have him? Are we close to J.J. Burden? All right, we're efforting J.J. Burden. Feels like our phone line's crashed. Who's our phone carrier? <laughs> Can we get that done? You let me know, Judah, if J.J. Burden is available here. I think we got him, J.J. J.J. Available. Can you? Oh, J.J., Can you me? there? Yes. Thank you for making time. No, thank you for the invitation. It was good timing. Let's let's kick this around, J.J. Uh, you know, you and I, I think, last communicated when the Oregon football players had declared for the draft and did not get drafted. They had, uh, you know, four underclassmen who declared. It really upset you, and I I thought you had some real wisdom. Uh, How did that make you feel? Oh, I was was frustrated. I was irritated because I've seen like I've witnessed this for years now, and, and it caused me to voice my thoughts when I saw your article. What what kind of advice do you give guys if you had a chance to talk to guys? Well, I would you know based on what I saw, if I if I've watched a player and I've kind of kind of evaluated them in my head, and if I don't think they're ready, I'm going to give them honest feedback and tell them why I don't think they're ready and what what I believe they need to work on to put them in a better position for the next year or whenever they're ready to actually come out. If we're talking about, you know, ready to come out, you're a guy who went to the league and it's an eighth-round draft pick, but you came in as a drafted player. Most of us don't go through that. What is the difference between you being drafted or you being a uh, undrafted free agent who comes into a camp? When you know, as far as the respect and the time and the patience that teams have with players. 
Yeah, there is a difference. When you're a drafted player, it's like you are a priority. They're going to give you every chance whatsoever to make the team. That means they're going to tolerate more of your errors and your mistakes and really coach you up because they want to look good as an organization that they made the right pick uh, in drafting you versus a free agent, you just don't get the same amount of opportunities. And when you do get a chance, you have to maximize them because you won't get that many. I think, too, when you look at the, the you know, the, you go into a camp, you get there as an eighth-round draft pick. How difficult was that to, to fight your way into the league and then to stick in the league as long as you did? I think about only about 2% of the players in the NFL played as long as you did, J.J. Well, here's what makes my story unique and why I really voiced my opinion because, I don't know if you remember, I tore my ACL up at rookie camp. So the first year, I was on IR with the Browns, but then the next year, I was the free agent. I went to Kansas City. Now I'm the free agent. So I was in that role where they brought, they drafted players, and then I was the free agent. And I just watched kind of the battle I went through to try to prove that I deserved to be there. And I still got cut because these drafted players had to make the team. Fortunately, they brought me back two weeks later. Yeah, and I think, you know, you told a story about being in camp early and, you know, you get into a sit, you get into a drill, and there's a veteran player there. And I, I'm always interested in how players mentor each other. What did you get in that in that first mini camp? Oh, that was a huge learning experience for me because that was my first camp. It was my first time to do one on one against these NFL DBs, and right away I was humbled. You know, because I sized up the defensive back, Hanford Dixon. He was an older player on his last year. I'm much faster than him. But I quickly learned that sometimes speed and athletic ability doesn't matter when you have experience. And he jammed me, threw me on the ground, and gave me a speech that I never would ever forget. <laughs> yeah. What does he say to you? He basically, because when he threw me on the ground, I looked up at him and I just said, dang, man, it's just practice, and he turned around and got in my face, and he says, rookie, in the NFL, every day is game day. You better do better than that, or you will not be around here very long, and that was like a major wake-up call for me. Yeah, and I think most players don't have, I think, the luxury of a veteran player maybe giving them that wake-up call right away. The mentorship that players have in this league, I talked with Anthony Newman and Alex Molden about this in the last couple of weeks, and they were talking about how, you know, when they got to the league, they sought out mentors, and then they became mentors later. You were in much that same position, J.J. It, you know, why is it that guys were willing to help each other even though the league can be cutthroat? Yeah, that's an interesting concept because you'd think that they wouldn't, but, you know, they were willing to help out the young players. And I think also, too, a lot of the veterans, like when I went to Cleveland, they had Webster Slaughter, Reggie Langhorn, Brian Brennan. These guys were in the prime of their career. They didn't feel threatened by a younger player like me, and they were willing to help. When I got to Kansas City, it was Stephon Page. He was still balling out. He didn't feel threatened by me that first year. So I appreciate they were willing to do that because then later on, I became a mentor as I helped younger players who were signing with the teams I was on.
Yeah, I think that's interesting because we saw, you know, Ryan Tannehill came out earlier this year and they drafted a quarterback and he said, it's not my job to mentor that guy. And he caught some heat from it because you're on a team. I mean, on one hand, yeah, that guy's trying to take your job. But on the other hand, you are you're still teammates, right? Yeah, and, and in his case, too, he's a leader. Quarterbacks are seen as leaders of the team, so when a quarterback makes that kind of um, comment, you know, it could have a, an adverse reaction from the other players and start questioning his leadership. So I was really, really surprised he made that comment. We're talking to J.J. Burden, former University of Oregon wide receiver, played in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs and the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, I look at your career, at what point did you feel like you made it? Like, you know, you're in the league, you feel like you've got stability. What, is there ever that kind of comfort? For me, John, it was probably my fifth year. <laughs> I just felt like I was still trying to prove everybody I could make it. And, and that first year in Kansas City, I had a lot of long touchdowns. And the next year, they drafted some guys, so I didn't play much. And then the very last game of that 91 season, I had a game where I had eight catches, 188 yards, two touchdowns of 52 and 57 yards. And then the next year, they asked me to be a starter. And that's when I felt like I really finally had made it. But once you make it, then you have to make sure you stay there so you're never putting in that work. You're never going into that complacency mindset, you know? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, most people in, in most jobs don't have that urgency or somebody sitting on their shoulder. But every year in the NFL, they're drafting new players, they're trading for players, and, you know, they're trying to replace you or get better an upgrade at every position. We're talking to J.J. Burden. You know, um, there right now you have players who are leaving college early, but you have name image likeness. And I really think we hit on something when you and I were talking about this a few weeks ago that there's a, there's a real absence of, um, you know, uh, mentorship or maybe a liaison position that could serve to advise players on, hey, look, uh, when you get to the NFL, everybody's good. Everybody's the best player from their college team. And and and, and give them an eye-opening to uh, how abrupt that transition can be. Do you think that's a conversation, or does it have to be kind of an ongoing you know, uh, relationship that you have with players to establish some trust and rapport? I think it's a combination of both. I think even one conversation, you could really provide some very valuable feedback. Um, to give you an example, I had lunch with Devin Allen like four months ago, and he was telling me he was going to you know, go for the NFL. And during that lunch, I told him over and over again, spend time working on beating man-to-man. -man. That is going to be your biggest challenge when you get to the NFL. You know, so but but on the same point, if you have the opportunity to kind of mentor someone and kind of guide them along and give them information as they're going too, I think it's going to be very valuable because one is we don't have an ulterior motive except where we want our our the players who played at the schools that we played at to be successful when they go to the NFL. Yeah, and I think that's the you know with Mario Cristobal left Oregon last year, I think there really wasn't somebody for a, a you know a good five six weeks there was nobody there to tell the players hey come back here stay here there's something for you here and i think that's an important message jj burden our guest former nfl wide receiver uh life after football how difficult is that transition after the game 
Oh, it's very difficult. It really is because you go from being a professional athlete, then all of a sudden you're kind of a, a broke down, physically beat up athlete who's got to make a transition. And um, for me, John, I think I was one of the fortunate ones because I never expected to play in the NFL. Then to get nine years in the NFL, I was ready to make that transition. So I was always planning for life after football. But for some of these guys who are raised and groomed to be in the NFL and they think they're going to be there forever, I think some of them struggle with it because they, they thought they would have a longer career. But the average NFL career has dropped to less than two years, and I just think some players aren't ready for that transition. Yeah, clearly. I mean, I think you're seeing that kind of turnover. Um, you know, you talked about getting ready for the next phase, like you were preparing for life after football. But how do you do that when you're told by the game that this needs to be your life? You need to be all in. You need to be at every, you know, every waking moment needs to be focused on what you're doing and getting better and being prepared. And simultaneously, though, we all know that it isn't going to last forever. That's That's got to be a tricky balance as a player. It really is. It truly is. But I think today I think the athletes have an advantage because social media really opens up opportunities to network. Because really when you're playing in the league 24-7, it's NFL. But you still can start networking and developing those connections and those relationships, especially in the off season, to really put yourself in a position to have options when your career is over. And so I tell players, I say, when do you start planning for life after the game? When you start playing on day one, you start building those relationships. You know, I, I was looking at film uh, during the commercial break, Steve DeBerg to J.J. Bird, and it's that first touchdown after the ACL tear, after you got cut by the Browns, after the Cowboys let you go, you were cut by the Chiefs, you sign back three weeks later, and you score a touchdown. That's incredible resilience. Oh, thank you. That was that is the highlight of my career, I think, because not everybody at the time knew what I went through. Just every setback, challenge, obstacle I went through. But um, you know, everybody saw me as an underdog, John, and and that was okay. But because I didn't believe I was an underdog, and I knew I could make it once I got healthy. So when I scored that first touchdown, you you probably see me. I didn't want to let go of that ball because it was just a long <laughs> journey to finally making it to the league. Yeah, what was it like? What was it like to play with Deberg? Because I think you look at his career. You know, he gets replaced by Joe Montana in San Francisco, but he kind of he hung around, played for a long time. Yeah, DeBerg was a warrior. I mean, he he was a warrior. He, he, he'd get beat up in these games, and he'd be hurting, but it didn't matter. You know, the guy would show up, and he would do his job. And what I loved about him is he was the master at the play action. And because he was so good at it, I caught a lot of bombs from him, you know. yeah. Look at, at your size, too, to play in the league. I mean, I, I talked with uh, Alex Molden about that. He said he, you know, he worked out against you one time when he was trying to figure out if he was ready for the league, and it was the same thing. Like you could flat fly, and I think it surprised him how quick you were, how fast you were. But I got to think a lot of defensive backs were. They would look at you, JJ, and go, "Look, uh, I'm going to throw this guy down, and I'm going to jam him at the line of scrimmage, not let him get into his route." Yeah, and John, that's what happened the first you know, two years, because my true weight was 157 pounds. 
And when I realized that these DBs who are 6'2", 6'3", and they're 200 pounds, if they could push me out of bounds, I made a goal that the defensive backs weren't going to get their hands on me. And I spent a lot of time working on mastering the ability to be bump and run. And it became one of my competitive advantages to where I knew that when I got one-on-one and that DB was looking at me, he was a little worried, knowing that if he didn't get his hands on me, I was gone. You are uh, helping people now. Uh, FASCO, F-A-S-C-O. Tell me what that is. Yeah, basically, I, you know, I became a professional speaker about six years ago, um, and I came up with the acronym Failures, Adversity, Setbacks, Challenges, and Obstacles because I just feel that everybody deal with these these moments in their life. And that was my NFL career. It was filled with it. But if I can show people kind of how I overcame those moments and how it made me better, and that's what um, you know, I'm passionate about, helping others overcome such challenges to go on and achieve the goals that are important to them. Now, you and your wife have done something amazing. You, you have three children. You have also adopted five children. You live in Scottsdale, Arizona now, but five kids adopted. What went into that? And, you know, bless you, you know, you, you caught up with Alex Molden just about. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, you know, sometimes life throws your curveball and you got to call an audible, right? And um, <laughs> that's what happened. You know, my my sister, you know, she passed away and her five children were going to be placed in five separate foster homes. And I fly out to Tulsa to check on them. And then 24 hours later, I'm in a courthouse and the judge tells me they're going to be put in foster homes. And I did what any smart husband would do. I called yep. my wife first. <laughs> and... Um, we were like, let's bring them in, and we did. You know, we raised all eight of them, and the youngest one moved out last year, so, John, we're finally empty nesters. How did that feel? Because I've got three. We just sent our first off to college, and it was it was a little jarring. But when the last of eight go, what is that like? It has been amazing. Um, I've told my wife, I said, we're in the fourth quarter. I said, the first quarter was – you know, we got married, and second quarter is when we had our children. Third quarter is when we added the five. Now they're gone. I said, the best is yet to come. So we're really enjoying <laughs> kind of getting to know each other again, you know. What a gift uh, to those kids as well. So I, I commend, you know, you and your wife for stepping in there. And, you know, it's a, it's a, a fantastic uh, gesture that you guys did and a commitment that you made to those other kids. So. Thanks for taking care of all those kids, JJ. Um, let's go back to Lake Ridge High School, Lake Oswego, University of Oregon. You stayed in state. How, how important was that for you to stay in state and go to a college in the state of Oregon? It was real important to me because I wanted to stay home because a lot of the top athletes, at least the majority in Oregon, were always going out of the state. And when I saw that, um, you know, Chris Miller and, you know, other athletes like Anthony Newman and obviously Latin Berry, we all kind of wanted to stay there. The irony was, though, John, even though I was the number one high school wide receiver, no Division One school offered me a scholarship in football. But Oregon's track team or track coaches were the only ones that said, if you come run for the Ducks, and if you can convince Rich Brooks to let you walk on the second year, you have our blessing. And all I saw was an opportunity, and that's all I wanted to do. And I convinced Brooks, and he gave me a shot. That's fantastic. J.J., hey, I appreciate you making time for us. Thanks for, uh, for dealing with us as we, uh, we had a little technical issue getting you on the phone. But, I, you know, I, I'd love to get you back on as well. But I, I do think Oregon 
should talk to you, bring you in, bring Anthony Newman in, bring Alex Molden in, let you talk to the kids about getting to the next level, staying at the next level, and then, as you have done really well, like preparing for life after football. I mean, I think it's such a journey you're on. Yeah, and thank you, and I agree. I think to do it right, you need a committee. And There's a lot of former players who are paying attention to what the Ducks are doing, and I think, like the guys you named and some other ones, we could give very valuable input to these players and give them honest feedback because you only get one shot to make the right impression in the NFL, and we want to set them up for success. Yeah, I wrote the column where I quoted you, and we, you know, our conversation. Dan Landing reached out to me. He says, "I'm showing this to my players now," and I, I thought, you know, go one better. Have JJ come talk to him. JJ, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. All right, thanks, John. Take care. Really good stuff from JJ Burden. And look, it's one thing to get to the NFL. I mean, it's hard enough. Look at the draft. Look at. Look at what happens in the league, the longevity of players. One thing to get there. And then you talk about staying in the league. Uh, you have a guy like J.J. Burden who is nine years in the NFL. That is top 2% among players historically who have played the game. Alex Molden, eight years in the NFL, top 2%. Uh, Anthony Newman, 12 years in the NFL. That's top 1%. Um, I think it's incredibly difficult. You have some great cases of guys who have made that leap and then stuck there. And I, it's really a theme that I've been on here for a couple of few weeks as I've talked to former players. It's like harder to get to the league or stay in the league. And they all say staying in the league is more difficult than getting to the league. And it's, in, it's, you're, you know, it's like a lightning strike odds. It's, you know, the odds of you getting to the NFL are, uh, you know, are slim. Uh, to begin with. Now, talk about staying in the league. And then, while you're in the league, monomaniacally focused on staying in the league, some people are whispering to you, you better prepare for life after football. Well, how do you do that when you're supposed to be all in every day with that job? It's counterintuitive. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. <laughs> You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's in the studio. We're going to change the energy of the show. That's what we're going to do. Every time a guest comes on, we change the energy of the show. Anna, how are you? I'm great. How are you? We're changing the energy. Are we going up or down? We're going up. Okay, up. We're okay. changing the energy of the show. Because I, uh, I can bring us down. All right. Here's the, uh, here's the deal. I'm going to pepper you. With some topics. You okay. don't need to be prepared for any of this. That's good because I'm not. Okay, so here we go. We're going to start with this one. <laughs> Topic number one. I could call it three random things. That would be kind of fun to like go back into like the annals of show history. Mm -hmm. We used to do a bit called three random things, and then we would uh, they had nothing to do with each other. And that's kind of what we're doing here, right? Yeah. Let's play three random things. Number one random thing comes out of the state of Washington, Bremerton, Washington. There's a high school football coach in Bremerton, Washington, who caused a stir, and this went to the Supreme Court. There's been a lot of talk about the Supreme Court lately. Yeah. But this is a uh, case that uh, the Supreme Court looked at today. Uh, a high school football coach in Washington State wanted to kneel and pray on the field after games. 
Uh, he started coaching high school football in 2008. We're talking about Joseph Kennedy, who uh, coached at Bremerton High School. He coached the varsity team at Bremerton, and he was the head coach of the JV team. So he was an assistant on the varsity and a head coach on the JV team. Mm -hmm. He started coaching in 2008. He began praying alone at the 50-yard line at the end of games. He would walk out to the 50. He would take a knee. Students started joining him, and over time, he began to deliver a short inspirational talk with religious references at the 50-yard line after the games. Mm -hmm. Okay, So it turned into a mini-sermon. Now, he did that for years, and he also led students in locker room prayer. The school district was alerted to what he was doing in 2015, mm -hmm. seven years after he started it. Somebody finally went, hey, this guy's out there in the middle of the field, and he's saying prayers. Let's get him out of there. Right. Okay? So they asked him to stop. They told him that the district could be sued for violating students' religious freedom rights. And he said, uh, okay, I won't lead students in prayer in the locker room and on the field, but I want to continue to kneel in prayer on the field myself after games. Right. School said, no, no, no. You can't pray on the field because you're on duty as a coach after the games. So he ignored them and continued to pray. Mm -hmm. You know where this goes. The right. school put him on paid leave. Um, the head coach of the varsity team later said, this is a big distraction. We can't have this. Recommended that he not be rehired because he failed to follow district policy. Kennedy, the coach, sued. And his case ended up in the Supreme Court today. Um, and he won a victory today. Uh, it was a 6-3 to three decision. The court ruled uh, along... Uh, you know, along the uh, lines that they were expected to rule. They ruled that uh, he should have been allowed. He had a constitutional right to pray on the field. They said it's his First Amendment right to go onto the field and pray. Um, I got a couple of, couple of questions here. Like, we're religious people. Mm -hmm. Judah's religious people. Okay? Mm -hmm. I can't speak for all the listeners, but I think there's probably some people out there that are religious people. Um, I don't see the harm in an individual praying or having a moment of silence or uh, having a touchdown celebration to themselves. It all seems to fall under the same thing for me. It, it, you know, should I be a Supreme Court justice? It feels like this was a no-brainer for the district. Um, Guy wants to pray by himself? We're going to say no? I don't think it's... I, well, I mean, I'm assuming that it goes out of the way to the Supreme Court because it's not that simple. I think when you fold in the notion that this is, in fact, a public school, um, and the fact that the thing that comes to my mind is that he's a coach, right? Yeah. Like he's the head coach, if I'm not JV mistaken. head coach, varsity assistant. JV head coach. So where I think there becomes an issue potentially is if players feel like they need to pray with him otherwise they don't their playing time let's say is affected mm -hmm. right because it's kind of like if you're in a position of authority and you are the person who's determining a player's time on the field position and that sort of thing you might inadvertently as a player feel pressure to participate in a, a public 
statement of faith and prayer, yeah. even if you don't necessarily ascribe to that. What if the coach had knelt during the national anthem? Well, we've seen that. So right. it's, it's, a, it's kind of like a, a point of activism. Right. But I'm, what I'm saying is, you know, what if he had dropped down and done crunches at half, you know, at halftime mm -hmm. by the teams walking to the locker room? Like, I just don't see the issue with any of it. Like, he's a coach. He is saying, look, I, you know, I'm having an issue with the national anthem. I'm going to kneel. Yeah. Uh, he, he's a coach. He says, you know, I'm a religious person. I'm going to say a prayer. Yeah. He's a coach. He says, you know, I didn't get my crunches in today. I'm going to do some crunches at midfield while the team's walking off. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't see the issue with any of that. Like, he's expressing himself in a way that, you know, is, you know, as long as he's not saying to the players, you have to also do these things. I don't see the issue. And apparently the Supreme Court agrees with me. Yes. And, and so I, I do see that. I'm just, I'm curious about what the public sentiment would be if this coach happened to be Muslim some other religion mm. that is not as popular in, you know, America, which is considered a Judeo-Christian And there are different prayers, country. too. Like, you know, I've been on teams. Yeah. All of my teams had people that said prayers. Yeah. It, my high school teams. We had coaches that would say, hey, if you want to pray, here's a prayer. Sure. And some of the prayers were short and sweet. Yeah. Like when we ask our six-year-old to pray at the dinner table, and she says, uh, thank you for the food, yeah. amen. And uh, then sweet. she's one bite into her like her corn or whatever she's eating <laughs> right. while she's saying amen. Oh, you mean last time? Um, yeah. But uh, other times I've had coaches who do like what feels like a 20-minute you know, sermon. Yeah. It, but it's disguised as a prayer. And yeah. I start to look around going like, you know, hey, coach, there are some people here that you are, you know, reaching for the first time. Sure. Might be might be a good idea to go light. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you, know, you know what I mean? You don't yes. want to give them like the big speech. Right. On this one. Right. But uh I've never I've never taken the issue like and and look, Oregon and Oregon State, both those teams go to midfield. They have players who go to midfield after the games. Mm -hmm. And we'll pray. Yeah. And it's not everybody, but it's like 20 or 30% of the team I see, and generally it's players on both teams sometimes that go and join together right. at midfield, and they kind of go, hey, there's something bigger than this game that's going on here. Right. All right, so that's issue number one. The Supreme Court is saying if you're a high school coach, you are allowed to pray. Another lawsuit was filed uh, against the Houston Texans. They were formerly named as defendants today in a civil litigation that is ongoing that names uh, Deshaun Watson and the Houston Texans. Uh, they are uh, Tony Busby, the Houston attorney who at one time was representing 25 different women, says that the, we believe the Texans knew or most certainly should have known of Deshaun Watson's conduct. So they have filed a lawsuit against the Texans in which they are alleging that the Texans enabled him. How do you read that one? How about them apples? That's interesting. So now, I mean, I think most of those lawsuits have been settled, right? All but like four 20 of, of them the 24 are have settled. been settled. Yeah. Yep. So now they're reaching further back, right, to say, hey, Texans, there's essentially blood on your hands as well. Well, I think they were successful in getting Deshaun Watson 
to settle 20 of those. Yes. I think they're now looking at what entity is the next best entity that's got deep pockets, and it's the Houston Texans. It, beyond that, it's going to be the NFL. I, I wonder if the NFL right now is bristling or if their ongoing investigation of Deshaun Watson is in jeopardy because they are potentially a defendant yeah. now in a civil case. Yeah. Because I think the next thing is it's the – it's going to be the Texans. Texans are going to have to settle, and then it's going to be the NFL. Okay, you were complicit too. What did you do? What didn't you do? Why didn't you know what Deshaun Watson was doing? Yeah. So the lawsuit says that, um, you know, that the Texans were aware that Deshaun Watson was seeking out unqualified strangers for massages via Instagram, mm -hmm. and that they enabled him, despite the behavior. The Texans, rather than investigated, provided Watson with an NDA to protect himself and had uh, the uh, team security personnel advise him on how to not have this be a public problem. Apparently, that didn't work. But Deshaun Watson, not the only one in trouble here now because of Deshaun Watson. I mean, I, I understand that these plaintiffs are going after more entities, and their claim is going to be that this was basically a system failure, that the system was enabling somebody that they have labeled a predator. I think in the court of public opinion, it may not sit well, because I think that a lot of people will look at this and be like, wow, okay, you've already gotten the settlements uh, out of most of the cases. Now you're just money-grabbing. Um, after more deeper pockets and eventually the NFL. Yeah, the NFL uh, was engaged in settlement talks with Deshaun Watson. It, they, uh, they were unable to, re to reach a settlement. Um, the, the whisper is the league wants a full year suspension for Deshaun Watson mm -hmm. and that Deshaun does not want to sit for the full year and the Cleveland Browns <laughs> don't want him to sit for the full year. <laughs> On the other hand, the league could just say, Deshaun, lie down. We'll have a masseuse be right with you and then just wait 12 months. You know what I mean? Like that would be the way for the league to get around this. You know, we'll be right in. We'll knock before we come in. Come back in a year. You know, on the flip side, no one's going to think that the Texans didn't know, right? Like the Texans aren't getting. Oh, they knew. Like no, no one actually believes that the Texans, you know, stuck their heads in the sand in this whole time and are going to play like, oh, yeah, we had no idea that he had this habit of hiring people for massages, not massages. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> massages, not massages. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, the, the, the teams know. Any team, any coach, any college coach who tells you, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know what my guys were doing. Oh, I didn't know he had that incident in his past. Yeah. I mean, either they're grossly incompetent or they're lying. Like, right. you know, because we've this, seen it time it, and again. Yeah, this is your primary asset. This plausible deniability thing doesn't work. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Third topic. By the way, I think he's going to get a year suspension. I think the NFL will not come off that. Third topic. Adrian Peterson, running back. Le Le'Veon Bell, running back. They have decided they want to fight each other. They're going to put on a boxing exhibition in Los Angeles at Crypto.com Arena. <laughs> no better place for it. July 30th, the former running backs will compete in an exhibition. It will not be a pro boxing debut because it's not sanctioned as a pro fight. 
But this is uh, the next in this trend of big-time athletes and social media stars crossing into boxing. So we've seen uh, Darren Williams of the NBA do this, Jake Paul do this, Frank Gore did this. Peterson and Bell will be on the undercard of a fight that uh, is called Social Gloves 2. It's promoted by a YouTube star named Austin McBroom, and he is going to fight another YouTuber in the main event. There's a rapper named Blueface who's going to fight former NBA player Nick Young on the undercard as well. What are we doing to boxing? I don't really understand it. Like, do these guys need money? Do they need more fame? Aren't they pretty set on the money thing? I don't know. So is it just a, a flex that they can and so they will? Uh, they're both free agents. Adrian Peterson's 37, and he's a free agent. He played four games last year. He, uh, you know, he he could end up on an NFL team, but he, I, I think it's a little bit of a long shot. Le'Veon Bell is 30. He's also a free agent. He played eight games last year with uh, Tampa Bay and, and Baltimore. But first of all, I don't really want – I don't even want to see these guys play football, let alone fight. <laughs> right. Like they're past their prime. I don't understand I, it. Like, so to me – and by the way, I don't go to YouTube to see YouTubers fight. I go to YouTube to see them put together like Lego things and explain things that I don't under, understand how to do in the yard. Like, you know, how do I how do I put the uh, how do I put the string on the weed whacker? How do I, you know, tell me, you know, I, 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 electrical help, plumbing help. I'm all for it, but I don't want to go to YouTube to see YouTubers pummel each other. That's not what YouTube is for. And here's the thing, like how bad are they going to wind up hurting each other, you know, yeah. in the ring? Well, maybe People but who maybe don't, they don't have this kind of experience. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's a really quick fight. We interrupt this podcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face hey, sorry Truth to interrupt Water. the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.